Hello, and thanks for joining us again on Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science. My name is Andrew Dunkley. I am your host. Coming up today, we're going to be talking about uh, a discovery on Mars. Yep, it's uh, the remains of a glacier, and they think the ramifications of that could be really incredible for future human missions to the Red Planet. Of course, they could just pop over to New Zealand and get one, so I don't know what the big fuss is about. And uh, a black hole has been discovered that's bigger than big. In fact, it's so big, they've had to come up with another name for it, which um, I, I think will be very fitting. But this thing is enormous, and it's not an enormous black hole. It's bigger than that. Uh, plus, we will be answering audience questions. Uh, Jeff wants to talk about time travel. Andy wants to talk about uh, telescopes. And Neville wants to talk about the Big Bang and a, a different angle on the speed of light, which will be fascinating. That's all coming up on the next edition, this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining us once again is his good self, the Reverend. No, uh, he's a professor, though. <laughs> Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. How are you doing, Andrew? <laughs> I've um, never been revered, I have to say, so the reverend is definitely the wrong title for me. <laughs> well, you know, I thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's worth yeah, a try. Yeah. Yes, that's right. How have you been yeah. since I saw you last? <laughs> uh, smashing, just wonderful. Uh, same day, different shirts. <laughs> Yes, well, I've been out on the bike, and I didn't want to go on, out on the bike, and oh. it shows I had all this morning. Yeah, be so before we go. start, I want to send a little shout-out to all the students of Dubbo North Public School, because I was I was there oh, this afternoon for a program called Books in Homes. Books in Homes is uh, trying to encourage children in primary school to read, and uh, it's usually sponsored by a major corporation who have representatives there, and they like to send along a mentor to encourage the children to to read, uh, they couldn't find anyone, so they sent me. Uh, but it was really it was really fantastic. We had uh, the school assembly. Uh, the The student council ran the assembly. The teachers just sat back and and let them run the whole show. And they uh, when they came to me, usually I do a little speech for these events. But uh, no, no, no. They th they thought it'd be better if they interviewed me. So they read my bio and picked out um, four choice questions for me. That was really clever and really enjoyable to be a part of. So um, it was so terrific to be a part of it. And that's the first time they've done the Books in Schools, uh, Books in Homes program. So uh, it was really fantastic to be a part of. And if you uh, are a school teacher, uh, go to the Books in Homes website and see if it fits um, something you'd like to do in your school because it's really worthwhile. And all the kids, every student in the school, 300 of them, got uh, three books each to take home and Ooh, to keep. Well, that's fantastic. They get them for free. And, fantastic. Yeah, it's a fantastic program. Uh, yeah. Um, did they ask you any embarrassing they questions? They asked me Andrew? why this podcast is called Space Nuts. Oh, because it's a good And question. I said, um, <laughs> I think it's because the people who listen are nuts about space. And they all laughed. So I thought, well, that's a good enough answer. But this is as good the as truth is, we don't know. Hugh thought of it. But he's never told us why. Yeah. No. Well, he thought he'd take two nutcases and put them in space. Yeah, that's, it's probably the, that's probably the real answer. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Down to business. Now, we, we've got um, uh, some interesting findings on Mars, and these are glacial remains. This is really exciting. And 
near the equator too, which uh, might sound a bit strange to us Earthlings. Yes, uh, it, yes, that's right. Um, it's uh, known that there is there are deposits of ice on Mars. Most of them, however, have been identified near Mars's poles, as you'd expect, because that's where most of the ice is on Earth. Yeah. Um, but this is an, an occasion where um, a report of some topographical structures, by which I mean things you see on the surface, uh, look as though you, you've got a kind of fossilized glacier there, or glacier, depending on where you learned the word. <laughs> um, it, and th they're, they're being called relict glaciers. Ah. Uh, and that, it, so when you look at when you look that word up, you find that it often refers Fred to Fred Watson. Um, no. <laughs> uh, it, no, that's a relic. This is a relict. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help yeah. it. No, you're quite <laughs> right. I'm certainly a relic from some past era, probably the 1960s. Uh, anyway, um, the a, a relict is something that. Doesn't belong there. Mm. It's it's um, something that's sort of out of its time. Something that would have perhaps evolved, or a, a species, sometimes a species or a plant, that is more suited oh. to a time when the climate like was the different. Like the wallamite pine. Uh, that sort of thing. Yes, that's probably yeah. right. I don't know enough about the wallamite pine to know that, but uh, I know it belongs to a different yes, era. But they found um, them alive in the um, in the Blue Mountains, not far from in, where I am, in just up the road, actually. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, Wallamite. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, but so this is not about living organisms. This is about structures on the surface of Mars. Mm. And the thing that's got everybody excited is that this sort of speaks of glaciation uh, and glacial remnants, but it's uh, right on the equator. Uh, well, near nearly the, the equator. It's seven degrees uh, thirty-three minutes south of the yeah. equator. Uh, so it's at Mars's in Mars's warmest area. Um, that's the bottom yeah. line. Um, but it it could imply that there is actually ice not very far below the surface. Now we know that in the Arctic uh, there there is ice beneath a very thin layer of soil. Um, the spacecraft whose name is eluding me at the moment, but was in Mars's northern Ar Arctic, uh, landed on the surface. Oh, it was probably back in the uh, early 2010s, I think, um, and scooped up sand from the surface. And sure enough, be beneath it, there was solid ice, uh, a kind of permafrost uh, of ice. And that um, is fine when you're at a latitude that might be 70 or 80 degrees, from the equator where you would expect it to be cold. But to find evidence that there might be something like that near the equator is exciting because it might imply that there are large bodies of water that could be accessible yes. to, um, you know, to human explorers on the planet near the equator. So it's at a place called Eastern Noctis Labyrinthus. I, I love uh, the names which, of places on Mars. They're just they? awesome. <laughs> they're fantastic. That's right. Um, and they, they, they all mean something, as do um, the geological eras on Mars. Um, and I can't, there's the Noatian. Uh, the period we're in now is, if I remember rightly, the Amazonian yes, period. Yes, I've heard that. On Mars, uh, which, uh, and this uh, structure that's being looked at belongs to the Amazonian, Amazonian period. Uh, so it may well be that there's, you know, it's been dated to be to be very recent. And 
Just uh, for so, the record, Earth is currently in the Anthropocene epoch. That's right. Yeah. Yes, we are. A bit that we're tinkering. Just in with. case you didn't know. Yes, exactly. Um, so uh, it's um, there's been a, a conference where this was announced, but the work has been done by uh, scientists at the University of. Uh, Mar the Mars Institute. Maryland. In, uh, I, University of Maryland. Italy. Yes, Maryland. That's the place. Maryland Department of Geology. That's what I was yeah. looking for. Um, we quite often get questions from Maryland, we do. which is yes. nice. And Arizona. Yes. Yeah, and Arizona. Oh. That's right. Anyway, uh, so th this, um, this is science that's been done basically from imagery of the surface of Mars. And you and I have spoken many times about the, you know, about the spacecraft that are in orbit around Mars. Mars Global Surveyor, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Uh, these are the ones that have been able to take uh, high-resolution images of Mars. And so what these scientists have done is they've looked closely at uh, both the images and the radar uh, re results from Mars, which tell you how, how high and how deep things yeah. are. And what, what they're seeing is uh, it's, it's actually rock, but it looks like a glacier because it's got all the sort of um, features that we normally associate with glaciers, like um, moraines and uh, these uh, lateral deposits. Crevasses. Terminal deposits. Yeah, crevices, thrust planes, all of that sort of thing. Uh, and they see all this stuff and say, this looks just like a glacier. Yeah. Uh, but the temperature's too high for it to be a proper glacier. But what they are suggesting is that what you're seeing is uh, basically deposits of volcanic salts, if I can put it that way, um, salty material that's been spread around by volcanoes. And I think this is a, I think if I remember right, this is a reasonably volcanic area. Yep. Um, so, and it, it's actually, um, uh, well, I'm going to read from our favorite crib sheet on fizz.org. Um, the, the the presence, the presence of uh, no. Wait a minute. Let me read a quote from uh, uh, one of the scientists, actually a scientist at the uh, SETI Institute and the Mars Institute, yeah. uh, who's the lead author, Dr. Pascal Lee, who says what we found is not ice, but a salt deposit with the detailed morphologic morphologic features of a glacier. In other words, it looks exactly like a glacier. And so, what Fizz.org says is the presence of volcanic materials blanketing the region hints how the sulfate salts might have formed and preserved a glacier's imprint underneath. Uh, when freshly erupted pyroclastic materials, that's a mixture of volcanic ash, pumice, hot lava blocks, come in contact with water ice, sulfate sal salts, like the ones commonly making up Mars's light-toned deposits, may form and build up into a hardened, crusty salt layer. So the idea is, uh, that you've got a glacier and then uh, a volcano goes off and you plunk uh, this stuff on top of it. And it's almost like, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you make a, a model of, uh, of somebody's face in, in rubber or something like that, it's that kind yeah. of thing uh, that you, you're preserving the structure. Uh, and another of the, uh, another of the authors um, uh, from uh, University of Mary Maryland, Su uh, Surab Sub. Subham uh, says the region, this region of Mars has a history of volcanic activity and where some of the volcanic materials came in contact with glacier ice 
chemical reactions would have taken place. For some reason, my um, the Bible, the bit I was reading, has just disappeared. Oh, it's called, it's called the, I have no idea it's why. It's called the internet, Fred. <laughs> Here we are. It's come back. Uh, this region of Mars has a history of volcanic activity uh, and where some of the volcanic materials come in, came into contact with glacier ice, chemical reactions would have taken place at the boundary between the two to form a hardened layer of sulfate salts. Uh, this is the most likely explanation for the hydrated and hydroxylated sulfates we observe in this light toned deposit. So it's it, it's it's a really nice piece yeah. of work. You've you've got something that mimics a glacier. What they don't know is how whether deep under or whether underneath these salts, maybe not so deep, uh, but protected to some extent from the heat of the sun uh, on the equator of Mars. Uh, whether there is actually ice underneath. Yeah. And, of course, that's the big question. And I'm not really sure how you discover that uh, without going there and digging holes in it. Yeah, I guess that's the the $64,000 question. And for future exploration and putting people on Mars, they probably need to know before they go, or do they send people there and go, well, we're going to land here and have a look around. But you'd really want to do your intelligence work before you... Before you left, first, yeah, because uh, yeah, it's such right. a long you could, journey. You could do that, yes, exactly. But it's the sort of thing uh, a robot might be uh, very good at finding. The only problem is um, with some of these zones, uh, Mars's geography is pretty rugged, yeah. and uh, mission planners are always very reluctant to land a, a rover or a, or a lander in a place where there's lots of boulders or lots of little craters or you know rocky outcrops. Um, because it's it's hazardous for the for the landing yeah, process. Yeah. Uh, you really want to land things in as safe conditions as you can, and of course that is even more uh, relevant for human exploration. Indeed, although Mark Watney would be able to help them out. He's pretty. He can get around <laughs> on Mars. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's correct. He's pretty good. Yeah, at that. I reckon so. But um, it, it's been quite a find, and it just it, it just keeps adding to the intelligence that's going to make Mars more and more exciting for a future visit. That's that's what really tickles my fancy is that, um, yeah, we know there's water there. I mean, there was one probe that uh, dug a hole and boom, there was ice. And that, it's, a, it's a stark photo, that one that they, they sent back. It was just the yes. little scoop yeah, that did a scrape right. and there was, there was water ice just, you know, millimetres below the surface. So it's everywhere, really. But this this um, could could be much better pay dirt, given that um, there's uh, yeah this potential um, significant amount of water. I, I suppose would that be fair? Uh, yes, and you know the critical thing is that you, yes, you'd expect a permafrost device perhaps uh, at high latitudes, but uh, where this is, um, it's. Yeah, it's it's not at high latitudes. In fact, there's a very nice quote again from one of the authors, this paper, um, the desire to land humans at a location where they might be able to extract water ice from the ground has been pushing mission planners to consider higher latitude sites, but the latter environments are typically colder and more challenging for humans and robots. If there were equatorial locations where ice might be found at a shallow depth, and we'd have the best of both yeah. environments, warmer conditions for human exploration and still access to ice. Yes, yes, very exciting stuff. And if you want to read up on that story, uh, by all means, jump on to the phys, P-H-Y-S, dot org website. 
This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a quick break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, this is the virtual private network that I use, and you can get an exclusive deal as a Space Nuts listener by going to the URL nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Now, once you're there, you'll notice that there's a 30-day money-back guarantee on Nord products. You also get extra months for free if you sign up to the NordVPN Space Nuts deal. So when you get there, click on the Get the Deal tab and you can see what's on offer. Now you can get the basic service, the uh, extended service or the complete service, standard plus and complete they call them, and you can get them on a monthly plan, a one-year plan or a two-year plan. Now I went the whole hog. I went the complete deal for two years. I got an extra four months for that. So I get uh, 28 months of coverage for the price of 24, but I also get a significant discount. And again, reminding you that you do get a 30-day money-back guarantee. But uh, with the basic service, you get high-speed VPN, malware protection, tracker and blocker protection. Uh, If you go to the next level, they'll add on the cross-platform password manager, which I absolutely love. I find it so useful. It's incredible. And it uh, dovetails beautifully with Windows computers. If you've got a Windows system, they also offer the data breach scanner. But if you get the whole package, you also get one terabyte of cloud storage. Very, very handy in these days of files uh, that have been kept digitally and the next generation file encryption service. That's all that's available. That's uh, it's a great uh, array of product, and you can get it all through NordVPN at a very significant discount uh, through the URL nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Check it out. It is really good stuff. I've used it uh, many times, and I uh, highly recommend it. nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Now back to the show. Three, two, one... Space Nuts. Moving right along, uh, Fred, uh, this story excites me too because uh, it's one of our favourite subjects, that of a black hole. This one's a different black hole. This one is, like you talk about big black holes, the biggest ones are supermassive. They've decided this is too big to be supermassive. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what that's what's really amazing about this story. This one's... Um, I, I, I just can't get my head around the gargantuous uh, gargantuanness of this 33 billion times more massive than the sun yeah that's right uh, the, the colossal number you're absolutely right it's gargantuanness uh, speaks for itself <laughs> yes, doesn't indeed. it <laughs> which is more than we can do <laughs> um, but yes it, so this is um it's a supermassive sorry it's a massive galaxy yeah. at the center of a massive cluster um which is named Abel 1201. Uh, George Abel was the person who catalogued galaxy clusters uh, some years ago. Uh, So its distance is about 2.7 billion light years. It's not on our doorstep by any means, but on the the other hand, uh, it's not um, at the other end of the universe. 2.7 billion light years is is somewhere where you can actually make decent images of of galaxies at that distance. Um, And so the estimate of its mass has been gradually increasing 
uh, it's a it's kind of the opposite story to Pluto, which was thought to be bigger than the Earth when it was discovered, yeah. and then throughout the 20th century, estimates of its mass just went steadily down. Yeah, they, they ended up going. Somebody, well, that's not a planet. That's a very naughty boy. That's what it was. <laughs> that's right. There was a lovely paper in the 1980s that predicted when Pluto mass would be so Pluto's mass would be so small it would have disappeared. <laughs> Uh, but, well, it's um, disappeared from the list happen. of planets, that's for sure. The planets, indeed, that's exactly what's happened. Anyway, this is the opposite thing. It's getting bigger. Um, and so this, um, I think it was previously uh, estimated, it's still big, it was previously estimated at something like 16 billion solar masses. Uh, but as you said, it's now gone up to nearly 33 billion solar masses. And the question is, I guess, that's on everybody's lips, um, how were these measurements made? Um, did somebody go there with a weighing scale or what happened? And basically, the answer is none of the above. Um, it was done by gravitational lensing, that fantastic trick that astronomers have at their disposal to measure mass by looking uh, at how objects a long way behind other things, the things whose mass you want to measure, yep. looking how their light is distorted. Uh, or bent um, by the gravitational pull of whatever it is that's at the middle uh, of that object. Excuse me, of that object, and um, that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, that's what what has happened. So, here. what have they decided to call it if it's too 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 big to be supermassive? <laughs> well, yeah. So, so we we think that most galaxies, any ordinary galaxy, uh, has what we call a supermassive black hole at its centre, including yep. our own. And the, the black hole at the centre of our galaxy, if I remember rightly, is 3.6 million times the mass of the uh, sun. But billion solar mass black holes are relatively common, and they are called supermassive black holes. But this is wipes the floor with most of those, uh, and it is an ultramassive black ultramassive. hole. Ultramassive. Uh, ultramassive, that's the correct term now, for if it. They, if they'd really been uh, thinking outside the square, they would have kept up with the modern vernacular and called it Ubermassive, but I guess ultramassive will do the trick. That um, and then uh, yeah, this is probably one of the biggest ever found. I'm, I'm assuming there's been bigger ones found, but not many. Yes, that's right. And uh, you know, th but this ranks among the the top the top very few. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure where it stands in the records. The problem is exactly as I, I guess this story highlights. The problem with things like this is how you measure their mass accurately. Yeah. Uh, and so some of, one way of doing it is if you've got a, a black hole that's actively gobbling up stuff around it, uh, that um, can give you an estimate of its mass because what happens is the stuff that's being sucked in uh, gets swirled into the, what's called the accretion disk, this disk of material that's uh, on its way down to the center of the black or to the black hole itself. And you can actually measure the velocity of material swirling around in that accretion disk. And that gives you a measurement of the black hole's mass. But this galaxy, uh, it's supermassive, sorry, it's hypermassive black hole, I beg your pardon, it's ultramassive black hole, get the word <laughs> right, Fred, uh, is, um, is quiescent. It means it's not actually gobbling up stuff uh, in the way that would be helpful if you wanted to measure its mass. Oh, and, uh, and that so, makes it hard to see. Exactly, yes. So you, you can only detect it by 
its gravitational influence on its surroundings or on the light passing it from a background galaxy. And it turns out that by chance there is a galaxy almost directly aligned behind this particular one at the center of the the center of the Abel 1201 cluster. <laughs> and so um, it's by looking very carefully at very detailed high resolution images of this particular galaxy um, that uh, a, a faint image of the distorted galaxy behind or the galaxy sorry a faint distorted image of the galaxy behind it uh, has been measured and analyzed and it's that that tells you that at the center of the foreground galaxy the one that's doing the lensing there must be this ultra massive black hole um, and I might just add that some of these observations were made with uh, an instrument called MUSE, the Multi-Unit Spectroscopic Explorer, uh, which is commonly used actually by Australian astronomers. It's one of the instruments of the very large telescope, uh, the European Southern Observatory's flagship instrument down at Cerro Paranal in Chile, mm. or up at Cerro Paranal from here. Um, so that's uh, basically the way this work has gone. Uh, it's... Um, the analysis of the gravitational lensing effect of the galaxy that has led the scientists um, who are based, at least one of them is based at the University of Durham in the United Kingdom. I used to have a lot to do with that university when I was building instruments like, a bit like Muse, the uh, one I was we were just talking about. Uh, so uh, that's where the results have come from, this, uh, this measurement of the gravitational distortion. Okay, I'm just looking through the list of... Um... Black Good. holes. I hoped you would. And uh, Abel twelve oh one sits uh, at do three four about seventh on the list. Yeah, um, that's now that's based on certain limitations. Um, but uh, I think the biggest one is uh, Ton six one eight T O N six one eight. Um, okay. which is a hyperluminous broad absorption line, radio, loud quasar, and Lyman alpha yeah. blob. Yeah. You get all that science, that's to use and the, they call it a blob. A blob, yeah. So that's that. what that's telling you is um, it's the, you know, the, the way that the accretion disk is behaving, the way it's gobbling up material that's been used to measure its yeah. mass. Uh, so that has its mass measured in different... Uh, uh, it, 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 you know, in a different framework. Mm. Um, I um, notice in the article that I'm reading that we have two different, uh, two different numbers for this one. Uh, I said it was twelve, twelve oh one, but it's somebody's juxta got the the numbers the wrong way around, and it's ten twenty one. Yeah, I think. Well, well, let me see. Well, I've got oh, I've got twelve oh one on this list. All right, so maybe it's twelve, twelve oh one. Maybe the ten twenty one is the, the that's incorrect. A, that's a typo version. It's a typo. That's right. But when it's a typo like that, you don't know which one's right. Yeah, well, I've right done one. them. Done, anyway. done them both a, a few times in the article, so it's um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pretty that's sure right. it's a typo. I do so, that all the time. <laughs> yes, I, I transpose. So I, I transpose letters and numbers all the time. It's terrible. You should see my bank account. I think I'm rich, but apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all right. You just get the millions in the wrong yeah, that's order. Exactly right. Um, yeah. The uh, the um, uh, so the the upper limit for these things uh, is thought to be about fifty times, fifty billion times the mass of the sun. Uh, 
and this is pushing it. It a is, bit. and that's why it's of interest. You know, it's not, it's not, not uh, craw clawing at the number fifty, but thirty-two point seven is a bit near that. And one statistic that I really like is the diameter of its event horizon. You know, the event horizon of a black hole is um, is uh, the the point beyond which there's no return. It's the point which where you, you can't even see light coming from the black hole. Yeah. Uh, and it is more than, as they quote here, more than 1,290 astronomical units. An astronomical unit is 150 million kilometers. It's the distance between the sun and the earth. Neptune is about 30 astronomical units from our, uh, from our sun. Uh, but this thing uh, is, well, so that would be a, red, a diameter of 60 astronomical units. This thing is 1,290 astronomical units. It is huge, yes. absolutely enormous. Um, remember that if the Earth, uh, if you had a black hole with the mass of the Earth, it's event horizon. If I remember rightly, it will be 18 millimeters. Uh, this is 1,290 astronomical <laughs> units. So it is a very big black it's hole. It's gobsmackingly large. It should be called the gobsmackingly massive black hole. Uh, Yes, that's that's right. That was a an expression that I think grew up in Britain, so it's very appropriate yeah. that uh, the gobsmackers uh, of the United Kingdom should put their name yeah. to it. But instead, we've got an ultramassive. Ultramassive is good. I like the word. It uh, it works, yeah. and there aren't that many of them, as I said. And um, yeah, it's uh, and I, I suppose it wasn't that long ago when we sort of started the podcast and and, and started talking about. Uh, black holes that we said, look, they only come in two sizes. We've never found a middle-sized one. Well, now we have. And now we're finding all sorts of sizes, uh, just the, yeah, the vast spectrum right. of them. They're just... Yes. Yeah, they just keep popping up. Darn it. <laughs> Although they can tell us so much. They also don't tell us a lot. They only tell us what suits them. <laughs> They're so mysterious. It's true. That's because nothing comes yeah. out of them. It all goes in. That's right. <laughs> Gosh, imagine what we could learn if we could just get our heads in there and have a bit of a squeeze. <laughs> yes, just in the gazillionth of a second before your head turned into a you spaghetti. You could just say, "Oh, I got it." Too late. Yeah, <laughs> too late. Yeah, I know yeah. the. I know everything. Too late. Yes. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you would like you couldn't even put a probe in there to send a signal because a signal wouldn't get out. Um, it, it, you no, couldn't it do anything. Neither would the probe. It's just impossible. Some things. What you've got to do, mm. Andrew, sorry, what you've got to do is find a white hole that's churning everything out, and that might tell us the secret of the universe. Um, but when found what we yet, need is we to uh, observe a collision between a white hole and a black hole. Ooh, now that will be sensational. I yeah. reckon that would solve that, the problem. That, that would rattle LIGO it a would, bit, wouldn't it? It would do. Uh, by the way, if you uh, want to follow up on that story, uh, you can go to the sciencealert.com website or you can read the research in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Space Nuts. That's us, Fred. Um, we, Apparently. Yeah, <laughs> now we've uh, come to the next part, which was after the previous part, which came after the part before that. Uh, but this is the part where we hand it over to the audience and um, we, we get uh, all sorts of questions that we like to sit and laugh at because we don't know any of the answers and we just make it up as we go along. Don't tell them that. <laughs> oh, 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 of course they already know. I, I think they do. <laughs> but um, we, we often get time travel questions and uh, Jeff is definitely of that ilk. 
Hi, Fred and Andrew. This is Jeff in Dublin, Ohio. I'm not a big NFL fan, so let's not talk about the Bengals. Anyway, I have a Godalka experiment about time travel. If I'm standing on the Earth today and I want to go back 10 years with my brand new time machine, wouldn't that mean that I would end up in the middle of space since the Earth has moved several million miles 10 years ago? I'd really like to know because it could be the basis for a cool science fiction story. First time listener, first time caller. Really glad you guys do this show. I love it. Take care. You too, Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, he's absolutely spot on. I think we've been we've been <laughs> over this once before. Just trying to remember if I've read it somewhere in a science fiction novel. Uh, but yes, um, if you were going to travel back in time, you would have to come up with some pretty savvy calculations that were exactly right. If you wanted to survive. Yes, and end right. up in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. So the the typical place in the universe is um, there's not much going on. It's pretty dire. It's empty space. Yeah. Uh, but um, you know, if you and and Jeff's right, the uh, rotation of the galaxy would have carried the whole solar system along by ten years worth of uh, two hundred kilometers per second times times however many seconds there are in ten oh, years. No. Uh, yeah, it's a long way. So. Um, that's right. And, you know, as far as we know, backward time travel is impossible um, because it, it conflicts with all kinds of causal things. Uh, it's philosophically not possible to have backward time travel, even if we had a mechanism for it, which we haven't. Uh, the forward tra time travel is different. You can, you can go forward in time by doing the trick of going very fast for a long distance and then coming back again and you're 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 much younger than the people you've left yeah. behind. Well they've proven that they've so proven that's that with atomic clocks, haven't they? Yeah, oh yes, mm. yes, that's right. Yeah. They can go forward. Yep. And but uh not backwards. Yeah. So uh and it's probably just as well, because who wants to be in a typical place in the universe where it's completely dark, nothing's happening. It's uh, a complete vacuum and um, there's nothing on TV. But assuming you could, which we like to do on this podcast, uh, assuming you could go back in time, you would have to calculate precisely where you needed to be at the exact moment of transfer so that you'd turn up on the earth and not under it or too far above it and come crashing back down or be just slightly out of reach and watch it you know, drift away while watch it go yes. past. Yeah, uh, yeah. There, are, there would be very little room for error. In fact, there'd probably be really? none, I would imagine, with, uh, with that kind of thing. Yeah, and so you'd have to allow, question. I know this is going to sound silly, but you'd have to allow for continental drift, wouldn't you? <laughs> Maybe. Yes, you would. Well, wait a minute. Continental drift is typically three or four centimetres Yeah, a well, year. you wouldn't. So no, ten, you, but if, if you didn't allow for it, that's 30 centimetres off target. Oh, you would be, yeah. But that might be acceptable. <laughs> Unless it was 30 centimetres under the surface of the earth, in which case you'd, you'd feel embarrassed. But I was going to say, you'd probably have to allow, you, you might have to assume. Um, so you go back in time, you're going back in one coordinate, one of the, of the space-time coordinates. Um, and that would mean that wherever you landed, you would probably have the same velocity through space as you had when you left, which is a combination of the Earth's rotation, the Earth's revolution around the sun, the sun's revolution around the galaxy, uh. and our galaxy's motion in, in the local group of galaxies, that 
dictates what your what our, your motion is at any given time. And it would um, it, presumably, if I mean, I have to defer to you as a science fiction author. Uh, you would come back uh, to wherever it was in the past that you were going to with those same velocity coordinates. Sounds feasible to me. <laughs> yes, yeah. it sounds like a reasonable um, assessment. I'll say. So that might mean that you know, if you got it really wrong, you might bang into something else that you didn't want to yeah. bang into. Yeah. Wouldn't it be awful <laughs> if moving. you just did all this, worked it out, got exactly the right uh, parameters and calculations and target points, and then forgot about the moon? <laughs> quite yeah. so yeah uh theoretically possible jeff because we are capable of backtracking our calculations to work out where we would have been so theoretically possible but impossible in all practical terms yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's, that's right. yes unless you can gather in all the power of the universe at once well, quite <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me know how you go with that, Jeff. Thanks for your uh, question. Lovely to hear from you. And go the Bengals. Uh, now to Andy, who is in Wisconsin. Uh, you nuts talk a lot about radio telescopes and optical telescopes to detect things in space, whether close to Earth or very far away. Science fiction talks about a lot of passive sensors versus active sensors. If telescopes are considered passive sensors, how far into the future is the technology for active sensors to detect things like objects in the Oort cloud or to look into gas giants? Also, uh, not that I'm tired of listening to you guys, but have you considered having a guest on the show? We have had guests on the show, uh, but not very often. But yes, uh, we have done it before. We'll probably do it again. Uh, and he goes on to say that I'm sure Professor Fred knows a lot of great candidates. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Andy. Uh, yes, we'll take your um, advice um, seriously uh, and we'll certainly look to that in the future. Uh, we just don't want it to become too much of a talk fest with too many people. I mean, most people say we you know, we just like it the way it is. Don't, don't fix it if it's not broken. But occasionally we'll have somebody on, yes, if we've got a good reason to. Uh, Andy wants to know about telescopes. Um, what does the future hold for active sensors, basically? So um, we do use active sensors, actually, oh. um, in uh, specialised cases. Uh, and you would know what they are because we've seen images that they've created. So some of the world's great radio telescopes and the, the dish that was uh, the, so the past master at this, and unfortunately is now past, was the Arecibo yeah. dish in Puerto Rico. Uh, what you can do is bounce radar signals off asteroids, passing asteroids. Uh, and that gives you a much higher resolution image of the asteroid than if you were just looking at it with an optical telescope, uh, which would be a passive sensor. Mm. Um, but um, the limitations of that technique really hold you to be inside the solar system because you're talking about travel times measured in minutes or hours uh, for the radar signals to go through the solar system. Um, if, uh, if you were interested in anything beyond the solar system, you're talking about travel times that are just too long. Probably the only object that you might want to bounce it off uh, would be Voyager 1, uh, which I think is 20 light hours away, 20 or 22 light hours from Earth, so that you'd have a 40-odd light hour return yep. of, of the 
active signal and you might have you might be able to you know create an image of Voyager one doing mm-hmm. that which would be fantastic except we know what it looks like because we built yes. it so uh <laughs> a little bit dreary so so active yes active imagery happens but uh you're limited by the laws of physics you're never going to be able to image the planet around of another star uh, without waiting for example even that little planet around Proxima Centauri you're going to have to wait getting on for nine yeah. years to get the to get the return signal uh, whose intensity would be so low as to be undetectable I suspect even by the square kilometre array oh okay so it's not an easy thing to do at length basically that's mm. right uh, you can do it in the solar system uh, it's done almost exclusively by radio telescopes um, uh, the Optical telescopes tend to be completely passive. So when uh, USS Enterprises uses its active sensors over, um, you know, several light years, it's really just breaking the laws of physics. Which I believe um, that series does rather yeah, a lot. Well, why not? It's science fiction. You can do whatever you <laughs> damn well please, really. Oh, yeah, that's what I love about it. You can just break all the rules. I certainly have. Um, there you go, Andy. Uh, can be done, but not very far because it just isn't uh, physically pro- possible. Do you like that? Physically possible? Oh, yes. yes. Physically. Yes. Yes. Um, thank you, Andy. Great to hear from you. And finally, we'll go. Uh, we, this is actually in the neighborhood. Um, We're we going to hear from uh, Neville, who is from a town called Kerbin, more of a village, I would suggest, but. Um, uh, it's uh, basically between here and your old stomping ground of Coonabarabran. In fact, yep. it's uh, it's nestled in the valley between Gilgandra and Armitry is Kerbin. Uh, so thanks for getting in touch, Neville. He says, G'day, Andrew and Fred. I live between Dubbo and Siding Spring and can see Fred's telescope from my farm. I've listened to you and Fred That's sparring on Space Matters for many years, courtesy of ABC Radio. On Discovering Space Nuts, I binged for about 100 episodes until I caught up and looked forward to uh, the next episodes. Two questions. The singularity to start the universe, A, was a single hydrogen atom, or B, as I suspect, a singularity, the mass of the universe? Which is it? I mean, the the, the next not, question yeah. is completely different, so let's just do them separately. Right, so let's talk to that one. Yeah, so... Um, it's a singularity which I guess has to somehow embody the whole energy mass content of the universe, uh. Uh, unless the process in which it was created did that. And this is where you know physics breaks down. We really have no idea. We can talk about what happened within the first, I think, tenth of minus thirty-three of a second or thereabouts after the Big yep. Bang, uh, which was when the inflationary period started. But what what the singularity was like. Uh, what what created it? Uh, you know, the standard uh, mantra is uh, in the beginning there was nothing and then it exploded. <laughs> uh, and, the, you know, that, that's about all we can say. Uh, so um, maybe, maybe it was uh, a singularity with the mass energy content of the entire universe embodied in its zero dimensions. Wow. That's something to think it, about, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is. <laughs> all right. Second question. And this this one I like because we talk about time travel and and you know going faster than light, which we've done on this episode and the last you know several episodes. 
Um, recently, you talked about traveling faster than the speed of light. When you go through the sound barrier, a sonic boom is created. What would happen if you passed the speed of light barrier? Would all the photons generated from your spacecraft crowd up in front of you and blow you to bits? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> That's as, as good an estimate as possible. But actually, Neville, um, there is we, we know what happens because... Uh, we can make things travel faster than the speed of light in a medium. Yeah. So the thing about the speed of light being the ultimate speed limit of the universe is that it's the speed of light in a vacuum. Uh, if you have uh, photons, particles of light, entering a medium uh, faster, so the, the, the local speed of light in the medium has to be lower than the speed of light in a vacuum. That's how refraction works. So, you know, if you enter glass or even air or water, uh, you've got a photon coming in from space, hits this thing where the speed of light is lower, but the photon is traveling faster than that. So what does it do? It does exactly what you get in the, sp the, the sound barrier. Uh, you get, um, in the going through the sound barrier creates a shock wave, which you can hear as a bang if you're on the ground. Yep. And going through the light barrier creates a shock wave uh, in the form of photons of light, which is called Cherenkov radiation. Ah. And uh, that's extremely useful because uh, photons coming in faster than the speed of light, high energy photons, gamma rays, for example, uh, hit the atmosphere and they generate flashes of blue light, which is the Cherenkov radiation, which can be detected by telescopes. And that's why these high-energy telescopes uh, are called Cherenkov telescopes. And in fact, there's a big one being built or being considered at the moment, an array of large uh, telescopes of that kind called the CTA, the Cherenkov Telescope Array, which will go not very far from the ELT, the Extremely Large Telescope uh, at Cerro Amazonas, uh, and again, not far from Cerro Paranal, uh, where the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, is in northern Chile. So that exact process, uh, particles of light traveling faster than the speed of light, happens and is useful to us as astronomers. Fantastic. Wow. Okay. So he's, he's so, turned on to something. Yeah. yeah. Th thanks for mentioning it yeah. here. And um, um, say hi to everyone in uh, Kerbin for us. They, he just did it. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> both of both them. Of them. <laughs> uh, that yeah. includes the dog. Um, no, <laughs> lovely to hear from you. And thanks for catching up. Um, it's nice to hear from somebody who used to listen to us on the radio all yeah. those years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, all those years yeah. ago. Um, we're just youngsters. Now, one more thing. One more thing. Uh, remember we were trying to figure out why Hugh called the po podcast Space Nuts? It wasn't him. Um, it it, it was uh, um, a fellow named Foxy. I don't think we've men mentioned Foxy before, but he recorded all the intros and the IDs for Space Nuts. And when Hugh told him we were getting ready to launch a space science podcast uh, between the two of us, um, he never explained why he used the name at the time. So we're all still in the dark about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But he's a super uber um, space fan himself. So I guess he was the one that was nuts about space and... That's how it stuck. I think it's more. He took just took one look at us and said, "God, those guys are yeah, nuts." Yeah, probably. It's got to be space nuts. That, that would be it. <laughs> Hello, Foxy. By the way, um, yep. yes. 
So uh, not Hugh's fault, which gives me one less thing to stir him up about. Damn. Um, Don't forget, if you've got questions for us, jump on our website because that's where you send them uh, via the AMA tab or the send us your voice question uh, or voice message uh, tab on the right-hand side. Uh, If your device has got a microphone, it's as simple as that. Or um, the text version, yes, we take those too. We've done a few of those lately. And don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. And don't forget about the Space Nuts uh, Facebook page, uh, but also the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, which is very active, where you can talk to each other about astronomy and space science and tell awful jokes. Not that I would ever be found guilty of doing that. No. (laughs) Check out our latest hit TikTok. (laughs) Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, that brings us to the end. Fred, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Andrew. And we will speak again soon. We will indeed. Fred Watson, astronomer yep. at large. And thanks to Hugh in the studio for deflecting blame. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, goodbye. We'll see you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. See ya. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.